if I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Nathan Knight. Uh, I'm one of the servants of this church. Uh, and uh, we're going to be opening up, as Joey said, in the book of Luke. But before we do that, I want to uh, dismiss the kiddos and send them off so that they would go and be discipled themselves. Thanks to those that are discipling them, what you do is of infinite importance. You promised when you said you'd follow Jesus that you would make disciples. And those of you that are doing that this morning, you're obeying Jesus. Praise the Lord. And no, may those kids go on to make disciples in the days ahead themselves. We pray. Uh, we've been spending this Advent season investigating uh, that promise that was given to us in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, uh, where it was said that a son would be given to us. And that was uh, a promise that was written some 700 years before Jesus came. Jesus shows up, and uh, here we have all these understandings of this son, all these various designations of a son. And so many people know that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus, uh, although, although I don't think many people have taken the time to consider this son uh, and what the Bible teaches about the birth of Jesus as to who he was, who he is. And so that's what we've been doing this Advent season. We've looked at the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, which means that he's holy. We then thought about the fact that Jesus uh, is the Son of Man, which means that he's the true and better Adam and he has dominion. We then looked at the fact that uh, last week that Jesus is the uh, son of David, which means that he is the forever king of the forever kingdom. Uh, and then we also saw that he's the son of Abraham, which means that he is the hope of all peoples. And so these are all things the Bible talks about. And this morning we're going to look at another one of these son designations, and that is we're going to consider Jesus the son of Mary. And by that, I'm going to help us see that uh, Jesus is humble is humble. Now you should know right from the beginning, all these other designations that we've been referencing are sort of titles of Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. This one is not so much a title as it is a description of Jesus. Uh, and by that we learn a number of things, namely again, that he is humble. Now I take this language of Son of Mary from the mouth of Mary's cousin Elizabeth. When she saw Mary, she described him in Luke chapter 1 verse 43 as the mother of our Lord. And so uh, this is a good description of Jesus. Now, you should know that that language of Mary, mother of our Lord, that's a bit of a controversial kind of language. That's the kind of language that would get Jesus killed in the end. Uh, and that's the kind of language that even people still find offensive today. Because this language of the Lord, the Lord, uh, is language referring to the Holy One, to the one true God. So for Elizabeth to call Mary the mother of my Lord is to say, in essence, Mary, the mother of God. Now, this language should shock us, but if we understand the gospel, it ought not surprise us. And so we saw again a few weeks back that Mary was favored by the Lord. Uh, in other words, Mary, this is important, Mary didn't earn the favor of God, Right? She was favored by God and that God chose her to, be, to bear her, his son uh, as he incarnated himself as a man. By God's grace, he chose her. An angel, remember, told Mary that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon her virgin womb. And by that, this son of God would come. He was going to be a holy one. Uh, and so even though so many people of great faith oftentimes, well, maybe not oftentimes, but at least occasionally would doubt God and their promises, people like Abraham and even Elijah, we saw the amazing faith of Mary when she did not need a sign or 
begin to doubt God, but instead we saw that Mary responded to this promise from an angel about this child that was going to come out of her womb. She just believed it, which was amazing, astounding. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, Mary said. The angel then departs. Mary then goes on to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is uh, bearing a child herself in her old age. She'd never had children. And so she now is pregnant with John, who would, the guy that would be known as John the baptizer, the one that's preparing the way for Jesus. Mary departs after getting that message from the angel. She comes to Elizabeth. Elizabeth turns, looks at Mary, and wonders at this woman, Mary, and her faith. Uh, and Mary, or actually Elizabeth, is wondering at how wonderful it is that she, again, is the mother of the Lord and that she is a woman of uh, great faith because she's responding so well. And at, the, at that moment, after Elizabeth speaks to Mary in that way and says that to Mary, Mary then responds just like this. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of this servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant, Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now I wonder what you think the theme of Mary's prayer is, or Mary's song, we call it a prayer or a song. What is the theme as you heard that read, as you listened to it? What's the theme of it? Well, I think clearly what we see the theme of it is, is Mary expressing thanks to God for choosing humble means to bring about his glorious promises. That seems to be the theme of her song. So the son that was given to us was the son of Mary, the son of the woman of a humble estate. That's who we celebrate this Christmas, the son of the humble woman who we know was humble himself. And so in response to God's Uh, mercy to her. Mary's, we find there in verse 46, her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. And so we can identify with this language a bit, can't we? I mean, have you ever taken a magnifying glass and held it over a word or held it over an ant? What does it do, right? It makes it bigger. And that's what Mary's soul is doing. Her soul is sort of like a big magnifying glass as she looks at God and just sees him as big in response to what he is doing in her life and in redemption history. My soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. And we are told why her soul sees God as even bigger, as magnifying the Lord. There in verse 48, you notice the word for. So it's building off of the previous verse. For. So why is, he magnif- why is she magnifying the Lord? For he, the Lord, God, her Savior, has looked on, on the humble estate of his servant. So the reason why Mary is so joyful is because God, her Savior, decided to use her, a simple, humble woman, to bring about the magnificent promises of God. She knows that all the nations are going to call her blessed, and she's right, isn't she? Here we are generations later, calling Mary blessed. 
because we see verse 49, God, the mighty one, has done great things for her. This woman of humble estate, holy is his name. We get more language regarding humility there with that word mercy in verse 50. See that there? Mercy is receiving help when you are unable to help yourself. So mercy is receiving help when you're unable to help yourself. And so that's what a woman of humble estate needs if she's going to be blessed. She's going to need mercy from the Lord. And that's what the Lord gave her in these promises and in her bearing Jesus. Verse 50 says there, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So that's still true today. On to verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So there it is again, this emphasis on God's activity towards the humble. So her language there, he uses his strength to scatter those that are proud, take down the mighty, and then exalt those of humble estate. Verse 53, she says, God has filled the hungry, I think we could say there, the humble with good things, and the rich, the proud, he sends away. Verse 54, he has helped his servant. That's the language of those that are humble, service. God has helped his servant, Israel. In the remembrance of his mercy, there's that word again, in remembrance of his helping those that could not help themselves. That's what she's exalting. She's praising God for. She goes on, just as he spoke to our father, Abraham. Now, Abraham, we remember, not exactly a man of great means himself, a simple man. And to his offspring, she says, his offspring, of course, is the nation of Israel, which goes on. We are reminded of of the words of God in Deuteronomy 7 when God tells the nation of Israel before they go into the land of promise, I didn't choose you because you're great, but actually the opposite because you're so small. So again, just this emphasis on humility. And so this entire prayer or this entire song is Mary expressing thanksgiving to God for the fact that he's the kind of God that works through the humble and not the rich, not the proud, not the famous. And Mary, we know, is humble herself. We can see that in this prayer. She refers of her own humble estate two times. She refers to Lord giving her mercy two times. And of course, we know just a few paragraphs down, we see Mary and Joseph going to the temple to offer a uh, sacrifice there for their child. And they're doing so with either two pigeons or two doves, which would indicate, by the way, that's a sacrifice for those that are poor. And so everything we know about Mary is that she is humble. And to be humble, friends, is not just to be poor. It's to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit. To be humble is to properly understand your position before a holy God as a sinner. To be humble is, as C.S. Lewis said so well, to not think less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And might I add, thinking of others as more. The soul, or maybe another way to think about uh, humility is sort of like Mary's picture of magnifying the Lord. Our lives are one big magnifying glass that magnifies God and others and not ourselves. That's humility. And so we also have this familiar verse in the life of Restoration Church. Our church family, we like to throw this verse around a lot. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, think of the other as better than self. See, that's what humility does. That's what humility is. That's what we see Mary exalting here. 
Mary understands this, and so does her son. And so this is one of the reasons so many people love Jesus. He had the power to heal and to move mountains. And yet he used it not to promote the reality of who he was, but to serve those like Mary that needed mercy. I came not to be served, Jesus says, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus does, right? He does give his life as a ransom for many. You, you want an illustration of humility? Look at the cross. There's the perfect picture. Humility oftentimes is best seen than it is defined. And we see it better than any other place on the cross of Christ. There is a picture of humility. There Christ lays his life down for sinners that had done, that he, where he had done no wrong. They had been the one that has sinned. He had done no wrong. And there he is giving his life for them. And of course, we also have that wonderful picture of Jesus, the Son of God, who washes the feet of the disciples just hours before he's turned over. And we are mindful, right, that he's washing the feet, first of all, of Judas Iscariot, who he knew would betray him. He's washing the feet of disciples he knew who, who he knew in just a matter of hours would either fall asleep when he asked them to pray for them, or even worse, they would run away from him in his darkest hour. And yet he still washed their feet to serve them. See, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, did not use his authority to promote his own pride. Instead, he uses it to serve others. And not just any others. He uses it to serve prostitutes and tax collectors. Uh, He used it to serve fishermen, a bunch of nobodies, at least the kind of people that wouldn't give him an immediate benefit if he did something for them. Now, it's true that Jesus did also serve the wealthy. He wasn't only amongst those who were poor, but most of his work was among those who knew they needed mercy because that's the way of the kingdom. It's the way of the kingdom. It bends to meet those that are poor in spirit. And so the son that was born to the humble Mary on Christmas Day was humble because that's who God has always worked through. So this trait of Jesus that we see in his humility, this trait that we see in him was not this kind of trait that maybe my sons would pick up from their mother as they watch her. No, Jesus had this. Jesus was humble because God had always worked through the humble to bring about his good purposes. And the reason for this, the reason why God cares for the humble, pursues the humble, uses the humble, this is important that you understand this, is not just for humility's sake. He uses the humble, works amongst the humble, because the humble uniquely understand their need for God in his gospel. That's why he works among the humble. Not just to be humble for the sake of being humble, but because the humble understand they need God and they need his gospel. They know that they are spiritually bankrupt. They know that God is going to have to work in them if they are going to make much of God, to be reconciled to God. They know that their good works are nothing. And so they need God to work in them. And so it does not surprise us then that the record of God's redemptive activity is towards the humble. Because the humble uniquely understand their deepest need to overcome their sin and be with God. And so they look to him for the answer. We can see that God has always worked this way towards the humble. His redemptive activity has always been towards the humble. Let me give you just some examples. I'm just going to take a rock and I'm going to skip it across the Bible. Look what we see, Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. We learn of the Lord's anger against Pharaoh because he refused, Pharaoh refused to humble himself before the Lord. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we learn that the Lord led the Israelites through the wilderness in order to, what? Humble them. David responds to the Lord's deliverance of him in 2 Samuel 22, verse 28. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. In 2 Chronicles 7, we see that the Lord promised to heal the land if the people would humble themselves. We see in Psalms all over the place this idea. We see in Psalm 18, verse 27, that the the Lord saves a humble people. Psalm 25, 9, the Lord leads the humble in what is right and he teaches the humble his way. Psalm uh, 76, 9, seems to indicate that God has risen in order to save all the humble of the earth. Psalm 147, 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. Psalm 149, verse 4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. And of course, how could we forget Isaiah 66, 2, that verse we looked at just about a month ago, where the Lord says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. And of course, could could we find a better verse to describe Mary and her son? In that verse, what a beautiful verse. But it goes on, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Zephaniah three twelve. But I will leave you in the midst of a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek, the, uh, seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And after this, in the book of Zechariah, we get that wonderfully specific prophecy that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is referencing Christ. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? We turn the pages in the new covenant. We see Jesus, the model of humility, who taught that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, which explains why his brother James would write in James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Just a few sentences down, he goes on in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. See, friends, the Bible is replete with his redemptive activity amongst the poor in spirit, and his judgment is against those that are proud in arrogance. And Mary's song plays right into that symphony. And so this is why we can say that Mary is the mother of our Lord, because it communicates one of the most amazing and inspiring things about God, that he loves the humble, so much so that he's willing to send his son to be humble, to take on flesh, to serve them. And so friends, when you understand that about God, so many other things about the gospel begin to make sense. It makes sense then that God would choose a poor, simple woman to bear the Savior of the world. It makes sense that he would not be born and this son would not be born in the great metropolis of Jerusalem, but in the tiny town of Bethlehem, the city of David. That would make sense to us. It would make sense to us that there would be no place for them in the end. That seems to work in keeping with the rest of the story of the Bible. That he would be born in a lowly stable. It would make sense that his earthly father would not be some great person of prominence, but instead a simple carpenter. 
It would make sense that he would go on to live in that town that Nathaniel would say later, nothing good comes from, the town of Nazareth. It would make sense that he would choose to build his kingdom on the backs of a bunch of nobodies as he defeated the powers of sin and Satan on a cross. A cross which is a thing meant to humble you. See, the cross, friends, teaches us exactly what Jesus taught us when he says that the greatest among you must be the servant of all. God shows his power in weakness. And that's what Christmas teaches us. Jesus is the son of Mary, the son of the humble woman. And by that, friends, we see the might of God. Go and research virtually every empire and every other world religion. And they all essentially work the same, more or less. Be more and more mighty, and you'll get more and more strength or more and more rewards, more and more acclaim. Through building an army or by boasting more and more in your religious deeds, your obedience. Either way, the idea is to try and to make yourself stronger, do more things to get more acclaim. But the son that was born to Mary did the exact opposite. Exact opposite. He gave up his position of strength and became weak in order to bring about a claim. He didn't die like some other religious leaders surrounded by numerous wives in a lap of luxury. No, not at all. Nor did he die like some great military leader that was destroying a weaker people in order to bring about his regime. No, Jesus, the son of Mary, was abandoned by all of his closest friends and disciples. His own people turned on him made fun of him, mocked him, laughed at him. He died hanging between two criminals as though he were a criminal himself. But just as we have seen, that was and always has been the way of God's redemption. Listen to how the Apostle Paul explains this to a church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Listen how Paul speaks this idea of God working amongst the sort of weak things in the world to shame the wise. Because this church was enthralled with earthly power and strength. Listen to how he describes the way of the kingdom. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's the reason for why God's working through the humble. So that no one may boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul would go on to write another letter to this church that is enthralled with worldly power and worldly uh, pleasures and wisdom. And he would say this, you heard Joe reference it earlier in the prayer, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And of course we see that again in the cross where Christ pays the penalty for sinners that they might become reconciled and know the wealth of their God and His kingdom. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Friends, that's who Mary was because that's who Jesus was born to be. And that's who we must be. That's who we must be. As Jesus was the son of Mary, the son of a humble woman, of a humble estate, so we must be sons and daughters of that humble woman ourselves. We must be poor in spirit. We must know that we are weak. And like Mary, we must know that we need mercy because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. We learn that in the Christmas story. And so let's think just for a minute about what it might look like to be people of the son of Mary, to be people of Jesus. So we learn in the Bible that those who have repented and believed on Christ and received salvation, we learn uh, that uh, those that are in Christ are just that. They're in Him. Therefore, if we are in Christ, we must be in that same humility, just as He was. And so let me give us two ways that we can promote this kind of humility and be the kind of people that God works through. Two ways to know and two ways to cultivate our own humility, that we might be uh, ingrained in this amazing story of redemption. So first off, we learn from this prayer in and of itself that to be humble is to pray. To be humble is to pray. See, look, at the revelation of God's mercy to Mary, Mary prays. Jesus, of course, is seen to be praying all the time throughout Scripture. And this is, this is not just something that they do because they're supposed to do it, but it's a reflection of themselves as people that are humble. Because, listen, don't miss this, because the humble understand they need God, whereas the proud do not think that they need Him. Therefore, they do not pray, at least not in a meaningful way anyway. Mary's humility was built off of her understanding her need for God. And likewise, the son of Mary, Christ the Lord, knew he had a need for the fellowship of his heavenly father. And so he prayed. Therefore, if we are in Christ, then we should express our humility by praying because we understand our need for the father. And so we could say the opposite. To not pray is to not be humble. Or, or maybe more, a little bit more bold. To not pray is to be proud. Because you think you don't need him. You don't need his presence. You don't need his fellowship. You don't need his guidance. You don't really need him. You're fine on your own. To not pray means that you think you can do it on your own. Which is not something we see in the annals of scripture. See the humble pray because they recognize that they're weak. And in need of God's mercy. 
And so I think about this myself. You know, I have two sons. When my son, my six-year-old son, he can't reach the water. So what does he do? He calls for his father to come and turn the water on. And that's who we are. We're like my son. We can't reach the water. And we have to lean upon him to come and turn it on for us that we could drink and be satisfied. We should regularly see that we are not God and that we need him, that we fail him and we need his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. We should be calling out to him regularly. And friends, listen to this, not just to ask for stuff, not just to treat him like Santa Claus. Give me this, give me that. No, we call upon him to enjoy his presence, to adore him as the angels did, as Mary did. You know, I think about this too in my sons. They're always, always wanting to show me stuff. Dad, look what I drew. Dad, look at this that I made. Dad, look at this. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, cool, good, buddy. That's great. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, all the time. Why do they do that? Why? They do it because they want to enjoy the favor of their dad. And so in the same way, when we pray, that's what we're doing. Is where we want to enjoy the fellowship of the Father. Let Him see our life. Let Him see our ministry. Let Him look at it and then enjoy the acceptance of God in that prayer. We must do the same. So to do otherwise is to be proud. But to pray is to be humble. Second thing we learn from this is to be humble as Christ is humble is to be thankful. We pray and we're thankful. Look again there at verses 46 and 47. Not only does Mary pray, but her first words are full of thanksgiving. See, when we more readily recognize who we are in comparison to the greatness of God, we should be quick to be thankful that we have anything at all, much less the forgiveness of our sins. Mary may have had very little and it just seems as though she did. It seems as though she had very little in the way of her earthly possessions. My wife and I were thinking about this this week. What Mary had to endure because of that pregnancy. The scorn, the shame that she would have had to have received because they thought that she had that child out of wedlock. And yet, when you asked her, she seemed as though she was wealthy, full of thanks. She was more aware of her wealth in her salvation the role she played in redemption. She was more aware of those things than she was of the fact that she didn't have other worldly possessions. Those seems to be the thing that oriented her life more than the things that she did not have. And of course, the same could be said of the Son of Mary, Christ the Lord. He once said in response to someone that wanted to follow him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests to live in, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Let the dead bury the dead and come and follow me. In other words, Jesus was well aware of the fact that he was a homeless man. But to him, following the path of redemption was full of far more wealth than any earthly possessions or pleasures. And that thought never seemed to leave Jesus. So much so that he would be willing to go through pain and suffering just to keep pursuing it. He always seemed to be be aware of what was more valuable, more enduring, more eternal. And so because of that, he was always full of thanksgiving. He was always thankful. And so must his followers be if we are to be humble as he was. We must be aware of all that we have in Christ, all the rewards of Christ, more so than what we don't have in this world. So isn't it interesting, friends, that the proud in our day who are full of what the world thinks you need to have in order to be happy, isn't it interesting of them 
that they so rarely seem to be happy. (laughs) And isn't that because they're more aware, again, of what they don't have instead of what they do have? Jesus said famously, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? See, the humble sons and daughters of God, they boast in the cross of Christ by which the world was crucified to them and then to the world. And so, friends, we don't need all the stuff, all the kinds of things that the people tell us we need, whether it be relationships, whether it be stuff, whether it be degrees, whether it be whatever it is. We don't need those things. It'd be nice to have those things. They're not bad in and of themselves. But listen, we are more guided by what we have in Christ and our redemption and being part of his activity, his kingdom in the world. We're more aware of those things. And as a result, we are more thankful. And so our hearts are full. They are full. And that leads us to be thankful, which leads us to be humble. Because we know that all the gifts we have, the most important things about us, the most important things that we have as people, redemption, reconciliation, justification, propitiation, all these things, adoption, those are the best things about us. And because we're so aware of those things, we can then be thankful and then be humble. And we can know that all of that stuff came to us because we did nothing. We didn't do anything. It all came to us by the grace and mercy of God. And so Christmas teaches us this. It teaches us the importance of humility. But not, again, for the sake of itself. Not being humble for the sake of being humble, but for the sake of being able to call out to our Heavenly Father in prayer. To be able to be called to mind the things that we have to be thankful for in our redemption. And those things, as we are aware of those things, it calls us then to respond in humility and a life of humility because that's what we see in Jesus and that's what we see in Mary. But it's still a little strange, isn't it, this message? Mary being the mother of the Lord Jesus, a little odd. Jesus incarnating himself as a man and saving the world through weakness, a little odd. It goes against all the stories of success in our culture. It goes against, it's so counterculture. Just think about this. Think about those fictional stories of superheroes. See, they appear as men, but they become heroes when they put on masks and capes and distinguish themselves from the regular people that they save. Think about all the rich and famous. See, the story is never that they were rich and they gave their wealth away in order to be successful. It's always the other way around, isn't it? That's the story that we're told. We, we love those rags-to-riches stories, but we never have that successful riches-to-rags story, do we? No one I ever know got a job because they hid their strengths and talked more about their weaknesses. I don't know of any beautiful woman that married a man because he had made himself as unattractive as he could. And yet this is the way of God. He chooses a barren woman to give birth to the nations. He saves the world from famine by selling Joseph into slavery. He chooses a man who stutters to lead his people and teach them the law. He chooses Gideon to shrink his army in order to defeat the mighty Midianites. He chooses the youngest son of Jesse in order to become king. And he takes that same king in all of his youth and he slays a giant with just a few rocks. 
And so while it goes against all of our natural inclinations, if we are paying attention to the voice of God, we should not be surprised that the way God would defeat the greatest enemy of all would be by making himself weak. And it also should not surprise us that he should choose the cultural elites. He he would not choose the cultural elites to build his kingdom, but instead use 12 regular people like me and you to turn the world upside down. And why do you do it that way? Because that's what he's like. That's what he's like. He is a God that shows his might by his weakness. So you think about that, friends, when you go home today and you look at that nativity scene. Look down at the little figure of Joseph and just think about all that he was not, and yet he was a great man. Look in the face of Mary on that little nativity scene and think about her, simple woman, and yet God used her to change the world. And look at the face of that little baby. That little baby would turn the world again upside down. Think about that. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way that we ought to be. We can see that, cultivate that, that mentality, that way of redemption through praying and through being mindful of all that we have to be thankful for. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you have uh, not understood the gospel in this way, maybe you thought that the way to the kingdom, to God and to forgiveness was by doing a whole whole bunch of religious stuff, being really strong in your religious deeds. Well, you need to know that's wrong. That's not true. That's a lie from Satan. Doing stuff does not earn your way to the kingdom. I hope that you are encouraged this morning, friend, by understanding, maybe for the first time, that the way to the kingdom is by saying, I'm messed up, and I can't get this right, and I never have been. And I need you to fill me with your spirit, that I might know you and delight in you and forgive me. Look to Jesus, the one that became weak. Trust him. Don't trust yourself. Trust him. Make yourself not strong. Make yourself weak that you might become strong in the Lord. And if you want to do that, please talk to me or someone else about it so that we can help you follow the way, the path of redemption, which is the way of weakness being poor in the spirit. Because we know, as Jesus taught us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. I'm so glad you like this, God. I am mindful that if the command for me was to be strong in the sense that I had to do it all myself in order to earn your love, I could never do it. I'm so thankful, God, that you show your might by choosing weak men and women. I'm so thankful that's been the story from the very beginning. I'm so thankful even as I think about heaven as we will look at a bloody lamb who's also a lion. I'm so glad that you're like this. Forgive me, God, for the ways in which I try to make myself strong, try to appear strong to my surrounding culture. Forgive us as a church where we try to do that and teach us to be a kind of people that pray because we know we're needy. Teach us to be the kind of people that are thankful as Mary was because we know we have the greatest of all things. Teach those that do not yet believe to walk in the way of weakness that they might be saved. And may we rejoice in this season as it reminds us of the beauty of your might in weakness.
pray this in the name that is above all names, Christ the Lord. Amen.